Well, I feel like lately, every time I get up here, I'm telling you about a new grandson that's been born. But uh, that's just the way it is. So on uh, the 20th, I forget that if that was Wednesday or Thursday. Um, somebody will tell me. But the 20th of October, Blake Howard Farmer was born to my son Jake and his wife Paige Farmer. And he was 714 ounces and he was 20 and a half inches long. So not quite as tall as his cousin, but uh, he is doing well and mama's doing well in their home. And if I seem to talk fast and lead the service fast today, it's because as soon as I leave here, I get to go meet him. So be, prayer, be in prayers for us as we travel to Tallahassee to be with him. So, but God is good. He continues to overwhelm us with his blessings. So, and farmers do things in multiples. So that's, I don't know why this is. We have large events in multiples. So, well, I had intended to preach to you about Bartimaeus today because Bartimaeus actually was the first sermon I ever preached. And I preached it at seminary. And I, I kind of know this passage backwards and forwards. I thought, oh, this is easy. I'm going to preach Bartimaeus. But God just would not let me go forward. I had no peace about preaching on through Bartimaeus, about Bartimaeus again. You know that story. And, and so take it home and, and you can devote yourself to that this afternoon or this week sometime. But, I, but I, I felt really compelled to take a look at this Hebrew passage, this weird Hebrews passage that we were given today. And, and, and to ask the question, what in the world is this Hebrews writer trying to say to us. Now, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. It's one of those books of the Bible that almost didn't make it in because we couldn't, authorship is so important to how the, uh, the, the, the bishops came together, how the council of the church came together and decided what was holy writ and what was not. But ultimately, because of the content, because it was so consistent with the other biblical writers, particularly the writings of Paul, and some think that Paul actually wrote it, but we can't verify that so we just say whoever the writer of Hebrews was but in the middle of uh, of of giving a long teaching the Hebrews writer interrupts himself and we get the passage that we have before us today well you have to know the context you have to always look back what's before the passage that was just read and what's and what's behind it and of course this passage begins by you know by the writer saying about that which we have much to say it is hard to explain since you have become dull in hearing. So the, the writer clearly has been talking about something else. What is that other thing? Well, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is, is basically he's talking to a group of Christians who are Jewish in background. And the fear he has is that they're going to return back to Judaism, to, to becoming practicing Jews again. First century Jews the Jews who still had the temple, who still had the priesthood, who still had the high priest, and who, who still worshipped with the idea that sacrifices daily and, and that high feast days are necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And the writer of Hebrews wants to warn and challenge these Christians that are receiving this letter of the Hebrews to not fall back. Now, you may recall, if you don't, let me remind you that uh, Aaron was the first high priest. Aaron was the brother of Moses in the book of Exodus, and Aaron is appointed to be the high priest. He's given a, an ephod, and, he's, and his sons become priests like him, and they're to carry out the priest, not, first of all, in the, in the tent of meeting before the temple is constructed, 
And then the priesthood goes forward. And, and the whole idea is that there's this lineage, this, this descendants of priests. And you have to be of the priestly house in order to be a priest. We would have potentially two young priests in Blake Howard and Ridge Shepherd because they were their grandsons of me. That horrifies my son because the last thing he wants to do is be a priest. And so he is so grateful that we're not in that Old Testament lineage where we where you are you're a priest because of your father. Um, but this is the this is the Aaron, this is the Aaronic, as they say, priesthood. But the writer of Hebrews wants to say that, that Jesus is better. Jesus is not a descendant of Aaron in that he is, the, he is our high priest. But he's not a high priest in the lineage of Aaron. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was always tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find help in time of need. That's Hebrews chapter 4, by the way. And this is what the writer of Hebrews wants to accentuate, that while, the, while, the, while Aaron's priesthood was helpful, it was, a, it was a signpost pointing us to Jesus, Jesus' priesthood is far greater than Aaron's. And he does this by talking about this strange Old Testament figure by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is, is somebody that Abraham encounters way before Moses and Aaron. And Abraham goes out to fight a battle against some people that have kidnapped his nephew Lot. And, he bring, and he's, he's victorious. And as he comes back from that victory, this priest, this priest, this king of Salem, he's both priest and king. You know, kind of interesting, right? Jesus is supposed to be our priest, our priest and our king. This priest of Salem the ancient city that preceded Jerusalem, comes out and Abraham honors Melchizedek and he offers a tithe to Melchizedek. And he honors Melchizedek as a priest of God. And this is strange kind of a Old Testament passage that we don't completely understand. Where does he come from? Where does he go from? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is a high priest. He is our high priest forever. He's without sin. He's not from the line of Aaron, but from the line of Melchizedek, this priest of Salem that you meet in the Old Testament in Genesis. Even as the writer of Hebrews shares all this, he understands that he's on shaky ground. There's a there are things that preachers, you know, you think that we can just get up and say whatever we want, but there's always repercussions, right, when we speak. You know, there's a, there's a pastor in this county who began to speak out about social justice, and they ran him off. So, you know, you think that's, you think talking about racial justice in, in, in our, our context is hard. Begin to talk about undermining the, the priesthood of Aaron and begin to say that there's a better priesthood than Aaron. Boy, you have now stepped on Dangerous waters right there. And so what does, the, what does the writer of Hebrews does? He backs away from this conversation. By the way, chapter 7, he's going to go full bore and 8 and 9. He's going to get into Melchizedek and how Jesus is this high priest from this order of Melchizedek, which is far superior to Aaron. But, but even before he does that, he interrupts himself and he begins to, to, to take note of where his, the people are. And, and what do you think he does? Does he, does he butter them up? Does he remind them of how much he loves them before he goes forward with this really hard teaching? Not a bit. Love the boldness of the writer of Hebrews here. 
I have much more to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He basically says, you guys are lazy and dull. And I can't talk to you about Melchizedek because you don't have the ability to understand. You are immature. You ought to be teachers, and yet you still need somebody to teach you. You should be eating meat, but you're like these brand new grandsons I have. You, you desire to eat, drink milk. You're milk drinkers. You're immature. You're dull and lazy. Wow. Boy, you've, now you've buttered us up, writer of Hebrews. Thank you so much. Now we feel much better about going into this thing. But this is what the writer wants to make sure they understand, that, that we're at this, they're at this place where they can stay on course, following after Jesus, the true high priest, or they can deviate. It's what, this, what the church has always referred to as apostasy. It's, heresy is just when you're, just, you're completely, you've got, just got wrong thinking, wrong theology. But apostasy is where you begin right, but then you go astray. And the fear that the writer of Hebrews has is that these Christians are going to go astray and they're going to return back to Judaism. And so he speaks in a bold, challenging way. Now, this is helpful for us. I'm grateful for it because this, this tangent, this sidetrack, actually becomes a wonderful insight to the process of discipleship in the ancient church. And it also is a warning for us in our day. A warning for us. So I want you to bear with me. Because I know this is strange, but I, I kind of want to back through this passage, okay? I, I'll hit the very end at the, at the end, but, but I want to back through this passage. I want to move forward. And the first thing I want to do is to take on the very big problem that's in the middle of this passage. I imagine if you listen closely as Elena read, there was one of these scriptures that you really were challenged by. Because it had to do with losing salvation. Did you catch it? Did anybody catch it? Yes? A couple of people. I see a couple of hands out there. So... So right off the bat, let me just look at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of, of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the, God, the Son of God, to their own harm and, and holding him up to contempt. Wow. What in the world is the writer of Hebrews saying here? Well, first of all, you need to know the writer of Hebrews is, is not speaking to people who aren't clear about the faith. As a matter of fact, this is some of that, that detail of discipleship that we get spelled out here. The writer of Hebrews is saying that, that they've understood the, the, the basic idea of, of the faith. They, they, are, they are believers. They have willingly committed themselves to the promises of God by faith. They've received the heavenly gift, probably referring to communion. They've shared the Holy Spirit, probably referring to the laying on of hands and the infilling of the Holy Spirit's power in their lives. They've experienced the goodness of the word of God. They've seen God's word manifest and made true, and they've Experience the powers of the age to come, probably relating to miracles and signs and wonders, things that will demonstrate. One of the reasons why Jesus does so many miracles in the New Testament as he walks around is because he's demonstrating that the, that the kingdom of God has broken into this broken world. And, and the, what you're seeing in those miracles is a foretaste of the world to come. 
where all pain and suffering and disease and sickness will be done away with completely. The writer of Hebrews says, these have seen all these things. They've experienced all these things. They've been baptized. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They've, been, they've received the word and they've seen miracles, signs, and wonders. And yet they have fallen away. The second point to make is that it's not a question about whether or not God will forgive or restore those who have fallen away. It's not in question. If you go through scripture, it's not that the Lord is long-suffering. The Lord is always willing to receive us back if we repent and turn back to him. The problem becomes at some point, and this is something that's spelled out in scripture, the problem becomes that at some point we become like Pharaoh of Egypt. Remember Pharaoh? If you go back and read that account of, of Moses going and saying, let my people go from, the, from Egypt, the bondage. Remember that at some point it, it goes from saying that that. that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, right? And then at some point in the narrative, it flips and it says, and God began to harden his heart against Pharaoh. Well, at that point, there was a hardening in Pharaoh's heart that allowed him not to return. There was no way for him to turn back and repent. And the same is, seems to be true in what the Hebrews writer is saying here to us, that, that it's not about God's forgiveness or about, about God's heart changing towards his willingness to forgive sinful, broken humanity. But rather, at some point, our ability to repent, we become hardened in our sin. The writer says that they've fallen away. They've crucified again to their own harm, our Lord Jesus, holding him up. For contempt. Now here's how I understand this. When we, when we repent and when we turn to Jesus Christ and we confess that, we, that he is Lord, we are admitting that when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was unjustly crucified. That he who was God the Son should not have died the death on the cross that it should have been you and I that were paying the penalty for our own sins. And yet Christ goes to the cross for us and puts himself in our place that we might be redeemed, he might be crucified, but of course dead and raised on the third day. But to then, to believe that, to put our faith in that, and then to fall away, the writer of Hebrews says, it's as if we change our mind and say, you know what? Jesus should have been crucified because Jesus claimed to be something that in fact he truly wasn't. And he deserved the death he died on the cross because of his falsehood. And in that sense, the writer of Hebrews says, you are crucifying Jesus once again. And how can those who have tasted all these things that he writes about and then turn away, ever be restored. Whew. Hard scripture. But yet it's in the counsel of God, and it's something that we should take seriously. But it's not about, I want you to be clear, it's, it's not about God not being willing to forgive. It's, it's about our hardness of heart, which effectively condemns the cross of Christ is something unworthy of us. 
I believe this is the unpardonable sin that Mark talks about in his gospel, that Jesus talks about in Mark's gospel. This is, this is, this is what, what, what Jude and other biblical writers discuss as, as that sin which leads to death. It is a rejection of the work of God. It is calling what is good, evil, and evil good. Now, this is not to say that, you know, I mean, the Lord's mercy is great for those who don't understand the gospel. This is not who's it, it, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew writer's focus here. It's, it's not those who don't know the gospel who die in ignorance. It's those who are dying in full understanding, having experienced all these things that are the fruit of the life of in, in Christ, and then to fall away. Well, sadly, in our day, we can all name names of people who have departed their faith, who at one point were zealous, excited, passionate about the following of Christ, and yet at some point they have denounced that or walked away from it to some or other extent. Um, I pray, like I know you pray, that those folks, that the last chapter in their story has not yet been written, right? That, uh, that there is still opportunities for them to recognize the goodness of God in Christ and to repent and turn away. And I'm not suggesting in any way that, that everyone who's, who's at this point would say, well, I used to believe in Christ, but now I've... No, I'm not suggesting that that person's heart is hardened to the point that they could not return. But I do believe there is a danger, as the writer of Hebrews says, of those who reject Christ and fall away as, in fact placing themselves in a place of condemnation. So I pray for soft hearts. I pray for, for those to recognize. I pray that any ways that, that the church has misinterpreted Jesus to them, that they would, they would overcome. And let's be honest, there are lots of poor witnesses of how we are to live as Christians in the world. And some of the people who are who have walked away from Christ or at least from his church, have done so because of the bad behavior of Christians. One of the unforeseen byproducts of COVID, I think, has been the isolation in our society has caused some people removed from Christian community to begin to think in ways that are destructive to their own faith. At least the faith their faith in the church of God. And I'm not talking about a particular domination or a particular church body. I'm talking about the church in general. And this is sad. I want you to be praying about this. I want you to be aware of this. That there, there's some, it, it, it's seeming to me, some of the stories I'm beginning to hear is that in some cases, people's faith seems to be on the verge of being shipwrecked because within isolation, they've become critical of the church. Ways we failed, ways we've, we've not operated properly, ways we failed to address horrible issues of injustice in our society, and they cannot stomach that. But my fear is that in the process of their critique of the church, that they'll also forsake the Lord of the church. We desire justice, but if we deny the king of righteousness, how do we know what justice looks like? 
You see, so many times what happens is we take Christian values and we take them out of the church and we hold to the values while we reject all the supernatural and all the claims of Christ being God. And yet, it works for a while, but then we lose the moorings of what exactly was justice based upon. What does righteousness actually look like? And before no, we've, we've devolved. The writer of Hebrews is calling those who are dull and immature and in danger of apostasy to rem- be reminded of the importance of not simply pursuing those things which are, are good, but pursuing the one who, only who is truly good, the king of righteousness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, what are the applications well, the writer of Hebrews, kind of backing up in the process, the writer of Hebrews lays it out for us. It's, it's, to, it's to not forget the foundation that we've done, to, to take note of the caution not to become dull and lazy in our faith. Theology matters. How we think about God matters. And it scares me when I read and I see and I hear people talking about they just want a simple faith without any of the complexity. Just, I want simple Jesus. Well, Jesus isn't simple. (laughs) I mean, the salvation of the world is not something you can wrap up in three sentences. It takes a lifetime of studying God's word and counsel in the communion of the saints and to to understand and to be founded and grounded on the very things that that the writer of Hebrews talks about. Did you notice the things that he said were, were foundational? Repentance from dead works and faith in God. Baptism. Judgment. Um, resur- the resurrection from the dead. These are the fundamental things that the, that the writer of Hebrews says we have to keep in mind, but we need to go beyond those things. Well, it doesn't mean forsake those things, but build upon them. Where are you building on your faith? I truly believe that, that when we preach, by the grace of God, we, we, we try to unpack God's word and we try to in, 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 enlighten and teach and speak into those things. But it's not enough just to hear one sermon once a week. And let's be honest, many of us are not here every week. So how do, we, how do we take serious this call from the writer of Hebrews? Are we studying scripture on our own? Are we gathering in small groups? Are we taking advantage of catechism classes? Are we taking advantage of other teaching opportunities? Are we, are we pursuing actively works with Christian writers, men and women, who unpack and help us to understand Great matters of faith. These things are not unimportant. I'm so thankful to Father Bob and Father Michael and for our deacons-to-be, our deacons in training, Justin and, and Kathy, because of these classes that we're offering. We want to we create a, a foundation of learning and understanding so that as we understand the counsels of God, we can begin to act out of them COVID has shaken up our society. I mean, lots of other things have shaken it up as well, but, but this thing, but we'll recover as a society. But the danger to the church is that we underestimate the way the evil one would try to use it to divide and destroy and to tear down the church of God. That's what's at stake here. And I'm seeing it as I talk to people. 
from all different places. The call is to stay in the body. I tell people, you know, I tell people this. They say, well, I'm, I'm not sure I found the right church. Great. But stay in the wrong church until you find the right church, okay? Stay in the body, right? Don't, I understand. You may not like the preaching or the liturgy style or, or the music or, or anything like that. I understand, but, but it's so critical to our faith that we stay in the body. The writer of Hebrews will go on to say in Hebrews 10, do not forsake assembling together, as some have done, to their own detriment. It's the Alex translation, but it's there. Hebrews 10, 25. We must stay connected to the body. We must heed the warning that the Hebrews writer wants to say. We must not let ourselves become dull and lazy. And it's so easy in the fog of coming out of this whole cultural event that's been the last two years to just be tired and weary. And I, I get it completely. But yet, there's a lot at stake here. And you need the body and others who aren't in this room need the body. Whether they know it or not. And lastly, we need to take seriously theology, but we also need to take seriously orthopraxy. There's orthodoxy, right belief, and there's right orthopraxy, right doing. We need to continue to, to understand the things that the Lord is calling us to do in this world. We will be called to love people we don't like in the church. We'll be called to love people we don't like the politics of in the church. We will be called to love people that we have different fundamental understandings of things. But that is the strength of the Christian church. That we love not because we are worthy of being loved or that the person is worthy of being loved, but because of him who loved us enough to give his life for us. When we had nothing in us worthy of redemption. Christ died for us. And so we love. And we're challenged. I am um, mentoring a young pastor in town. He's seven years into his ministry. Um, he is working on his master's degree. And part of the requirement is that he will, um, that he will have a mentor. And so despite the fact that I still feel like I'm 35, apparently I'm not, and people are beginning to look at me as an older pastor with some wisdom to share. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that, but that's anyway where I find myself. But as, as we're talking and he's asking, he's unpacking situations, I'm, I'm just going, man, wow, uh, some of the mistakes I made, you know, and, and some of the ways, and some of the things that are so easy to say, oh, you should do this, but I realize just how very difficult they are. And I'll be honest with you, as I was trying to rehab a church and, and, and to lead us out of the Episcopal church, there were times where I just didn't want to confront things because I needed everybody to be with me and I wanted to be liked and nice guy. And, you know, and there are probably times where I pulled punches in the sense that I didn't speak truth to people. Boy, I'm convicted this morning. I'm convicted when I meet with my friend Dustin. I'm convicted this morning that we can't pull punches, that we have to pursue not a dull or lazy version of Christianity, but, but a, a fervent, a strengthened 
an iron sharpening iron attempt to call one another to live boldly for Christ in this world. I want to leave you with what, with what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 19. This, uh, chapter 10, starting with verse 19. And, and it plays right in to, I believe, the, the call of the church today. Right thinking, true to the body, right action. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places of the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. I'm in chapter 10, beginning at verse 19, now 20 and 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this writer of Hebrews, Lord. Thank you for his or her boldness to speak to the, the, the tendency we have, Lord, to be dull and to be immature in our faith and to be led astray because of it. Father, we pray that you would strengthen your church. Lord, I pray that every, every person who's pursuing you would have confidence to know that their salvation is safe. That but Lord, for, for those who are tempted to walk away, Lord, may that warning of the hardness of our hearts cause us to pause. Above all, Lord, may your gospel be truly spoken and lived. And may we speak, Lord, not out of cultural hearts, but out of hearts redeemed through Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We seek only your honor and glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.